Well, if you have a Bible there, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 10, our sermon text is Mark 10, verses 17 to 31. This is the account of, it's often called the rich young ruler. I'll invite you to stand, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's word today. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word. Mark writes, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God, our God, stands forever. Let's uh, quickly pray and ask God's blessing upon his holy word to us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, as always, that you give it to us as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that by it you reveal yourself to sinners that we might know you savingly, that we might be saved through faith in Christ. And we pray that you would even now, by your spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Teach us as we need to be taught from your scriptures. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you were here, uh, some of you weren't here last Sunday, but if you were here, we were looking at the previous little passage, verses 13 to 16. Uh, That's when Jesus had to rebuke his disciples for keeping their little children from coming up to him. People were bringing their babies, their toddlers up to Jesus, and he wanted to bless them. And the disciples thought they were the bouncers. They were keeping people away. And Jesus had to tell them in verse 15, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That to get in the kingdom of God, you have to enter like a child. What's I don't think it's any accident that our passage comes right after that, that you go from Jesus saying you have to enter the kingdom of God like a child 
to this, this uh, story that's come to be known as the rich young ruler coming right after that. Because what does the rich young ruler refuse to do? He's a walking, talking picture, even a kneeling picture, of someone who really refused to come to Christ like a child. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. He says, Jesus had been speaking about receiving the kingdom of God as a little child, while his words were still clearly embedded in his disciples' memories, an incident occurred which vividly illustrated what he had taught them. He tells them, and then they get to see it in action. They get to see what it looks like uh, to actually not receive the kingdom of God like a child. Now, in the Gospels, you probably, if you've read the Gospels for any amount of time over your life, if you've been a Christian for any number of years and have been reading the Bible, especially the Gospels, uh, you probably have noticed that Jesus often makes, um, he makes a lot of different statements about what it means to enter the kingdom of God or to receive it. And very often, the things he says, uh, they emphasize different things. They don't contradict each other, but he emphasizes different aspects of what it means to be a believer and to enter the kingdom of, of God. Last week, when he said, you know, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall by no means enter it. That's one way. What is he emphasizing there? Well, among other things, there he was talking about and trying to emphasize the helplessness, the powerlessness of sinners to save themselves. A child, a little child, a baby, is pretty helpless. It would be hard to come up with a more uh, vivid picture of helplessness and powerlessness than a, than a small child, even a baby. That, that, that is also a picture of the, the necessity of the free grace of the gospel. What does he say? If you don't receive the kingdom of God like a child, you won't enter it. You have to receive it like a child. So it's, it's a picture of grace. What's grace? Grace is, among other things, it's a gift. It's not something you earn. It isn't something that you and I deserve. Well, now here in our text, it almost sounds like the exact opposite, doesn't it? Instead of receiving the kingdom like a child, he's not really contradicting that, but he tells the rich young ruler at one point to do what? Not to receive anything, really. He says, I want you to take all your stuff, your many possessions, sell it, give it away to the poor, and then come follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. It sounds opposite. It sounds, in a sense, it almost sounds like the opposite of grace to us, but it really isn't, that really isn't what, what it is. He's not contradicting the message of grace and the free grace of the gospel at all but he is emphasizing something else he's emphasizing a different aspect of, of the gospel now he tells the rich young ruler to sell everything and you'll have treasure in heaven and then what's the point he's making to the rich young ruler what is the point he's not trying to make he's not, he's not saying that you can buy your ticket to heaven He's not saying that if you give, you know, this, you might hear this in some places, if you give just enough money to the church, it's always the church, right? Give just enough money to the church, maybe you'll get in. We'll, we'll get you in. Trust us and we'll get, you, we'll get you to heaven. He's not giving a gospel here of generosity. He's not saying that you can buy your way or earn your way in. He's not contradicting what he said in the previous passage at all. He's not saying... Hey, yeah, you know what I heard? You heard what I said back then, but now I'm telling you something, something different. He still holds to and teaches what he taught before about receiving the kingdom of God like a little child. But think about what he tells that man to do about selling all of his possessions and giving it away 
to the poor. It would take the faith of a child to humbly submit to the Lord's command and trust that he, the Lord, would provide for all of his needs if he sold all that he had and gave it away to the poor and followed him. He's literally being asked to trust Jesus with everything, with his life, with his future. Follow me and I will get you where you need to go. I will protect you. I will provide for you. I will sustain you. That, that's childlike faith. That's not wanting to have it on your own terms. It's not trying to take care of yourself. Well, the first thing that we see in our text is that the rich young ruler, so-called, seems he seems to start off pretty well, doesn't he? It seems like a pretty good beginning. You know, it, he asks the right question, doesn't he? Good, good teacher, what must I do to what? Inherit eternal life. He wants to know how to get saved. He asks the right question. He asks the question that every man, woman, and child must ask and know the answer to, but how many are there that ever actually ask it? How few there are in our day that ever have that question cross their mind, much less their lips? That ever ask anyone, much less uh, someone who, who knows the Lord, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life. We ask everything but. We look for band-aids when we need new life. Not only that, but he came to the right person. Was there ever a better person that this man could have come to to ask that very question? No. Not only that, but he did so publicly. You know, it's, it's, he's kind of the anti-Nicodemus. You know, Nicodemus in John 3 was a teacher of Israel, right? He was a Pharisee. He was a teacher of the law. And when did he come to Jesus? At night, when nobody was watching, in secret. I mean, he, he wanted to know he came to Christ, and Jesus told him what? Unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. The teacher of Israel didn't, didn't get anything about the gospel until Jesus told it to him. Well, this man, this man doesn't come at night. He doesn't come in secret. He's not trying to be you know, secretive about it or hide the fact that he wants to know something from Jesus. He comes to him in front of everybody. Jesus is about to set off on his trip again towards Jerusalem. And up comes this man running in front of everybody, drops to his knees in front of Jesus and asks this question for everyone to hear. He's not ashamed of Jesus. He's not ashamed of coming physically to Jesus to ask this question. He's not ashamed to ask about eternal life to Jesus. There's a lot of, there's a lot if you look at the text, that we would think of as very commendable about this young man, isn't there? You know, if, as a pastor, if some, man were to, some young man were to come to our church some Sunday, we'd think it's odd if he ran to the front in the middle of a sermon where a Presbyterian church, all things are supposed to be decently in an order, right? Uh, but, you know, we don't do altar calls here. We're, we're not fans of Charles Finney, but this man was the inventor of the altar call. Only he did it himself. He ran to the front without being asked and asked Jesus what he should do. The rich young ruler does a lot more than most people in our day, in his day, probably did. He was a respectable man. He was a respectful young man. He was evidently a very religious man. This wasn't a godless man at all. Luke, in chapter 18, verse 18, calls him a, quote, ruler. And the word he uses there, that's where we get the title rich young ruler from. Mark doesn't use that word. But people take that word ruler to indicate that he was a, a man of some kind of authority, some kind of prominence in his local synagogue. Think about that. This man coming up to Jesus, wasn't, he wasn't a pew sitter. 
He wasn't a bench warmer. This was somebody that was very, very active in his synagogue. He was a very religious man. He was serious about his religion. And he came to Jesus to ask about eternal life. This was no godless man. This was no careless man. This was no loose living man. If you had seen him, you would have thought highly of him. You can see from our text, the disciples thought highly of him, even though they didn't probably know him. He was a morally upright young man, wasn't he? He was morally upright. When Jesus talked to him about the Ten Commandments, or the last six of them, what did he do? He affirmed them, didn't he? He acknowledged the authority, the, the authority of the Ten Commandments over him. He acknowledged their uprightness, their power. He said, you know, think about that. How many in our day, in the church even, don't even do that? We don't even want to talk about the Ten Commandments. Or we, we try to act like that. We're, they, don't, they don't apply to us anymore because we're, we're under grace and not under law. We act like the commandments are kind of irrelevant to our lives, even though they are the pattern for living that God has set forth for his people from the earliest of times. Not only did he affirm the Ten Commandments, but he said that he obeyed them. That he obeyed them to the best of his ability, even from his youth, he says. Think about that. Ever since he was a little one, maybe from a teenage years, he made it his work, his aim, his aim in life to follow God's law. Now, you and I might be kind of quick to condemn this young man's professed obedience. I know that's my first reaction when I read the text is, ah, no, come on, this guy must be, he must be lying. We might too quickly judge him to be a hypocrite. You know, someone who says he obeys the law, but he really, really doesn't. But how does Jesus react to his his profession of obedience. If it were you and I, you know, if we were Jesus, thank God that we, we aren't. If I were Jesus, the first words out of my mouth would have been, liar. You want to know what she did? Remember the woman at the well? Remember what she said to the people in town? She ran to town and said, come meet a guy who's told me everything I ever did. He told her about all of her marriage. He told her about everything. He knew everything. Jesus could have said to this man, you know, Let's, let's go through the ones I've just told you. Murder, adultery, you know, you know, defrauding, all these things. He could have said you did this, 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 and this, but he doesn't do that, does he? The man wasn't claiming perfection, was he? You don't, if, you're, if you think you're perfect, why would you have to ask about inheriting eternal life? Now, this young man's observance of the commandments were, was probably very much outward. Many people in our day, we think the same way. Well, I haven't... We think that the fulfillment of God's commands is just outward. Thou shalt not commit murder. Well, I haven't killed anyone. Check. I must be good. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Haven't done that one. Check. So far, so good, God. What else you got for me? That's probably what he was thinking in some, in some way. His thinking must, was probably very superficial, like many in our day is as well. He probably did not understand the depth of God's law, that it applies to our hearts, our intentions, our thoughts. He probably didn't think about the spirituality of God's law either. The same applies there. But this man was no obvious hypocrite. That's, we shouldn't think of him when we read this text and think, total hypocrite. That isn't what Jesus seems to have thought of him. What did Jesus re how did Jesus react when this man told him that he had obeyed all God's commands from his youth? Mark tells us that Jesus' reaction was that he looked at him. The word is actually much stronger than that. 
It's he beheld him. He fixed his eyes upon him. He really looked at him. He wasn't just casually glancing back and forth. He looked at this young man, and it says, what else does it say? He, verse 21, loved him. He looked at this young man who just professed obedience and loved him. And the word for love there is the same word that we, we it's agape. It's the verb form of agape. This is no casual, you know, kind of affection love. This is the same word that we use for self-sacrificing, gracious love. He looked at this man. He actually loved him. He had pity upon him for his, for his condition. This was probably not somebody, somebody that we should think of as a religious hypocrite. We know that Jesus' usual response to religious hypocrisy was not looking at someone and loving them. It was usually stern words of rebuke. This is probably the very man that you and I would enthusiastically endorse if he wanted to join our church. If he were to come in to want to join the church, we'd probably be all over that. He'd be coming in to ask us how to be saved. Our first response would be to think, probably this guy's not far off. This guy might even be a Christian already and just doesn't know it. All we have to do is tell him a few simple things and he'll be in. And he can be saved and a part of Christ's church and be baptized and and all kinds of things. Well, notice how the Lord Jesus responds to this man's request, his question. He says, to, he says things to this man that you and I would never think to say, and probably with, with good reason in some, in some ways. He says things that if you, know, if you were to take a class on evangelism and you were to say the things that Jesus says in, the, in an evangelistic encounter, you would flunk. You know, if, if someone were to say to you, how do I get saved? It's the first thing that you're supposed to say, or even the second thing, well, let's look at the Ten Commandments. That's what Jesus does. We'd say, that's not the gospel, that's the law. What are you doing? Wrong, wrong section of the Bible, Jesus. Why are you talking about law? Why are you talking about obedience to God's commandments? Why aren't you talking about faith? Why aren't you talking about believe, just believing in you and turning to you? What does he say first in verse 18? He says, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And that should have been a pretty big hint where he was going. When he says, no one is good, why, why are you calling me good? No one is good except God alone. It seems like a pretty strange thing for him to say. Now, Jesus' words, I think, in that, in that verse were intended to tell this man or to show this man that he had a terribly inadequate view of, of, of who he was talking to. Not an insult to call Jesus a good teacher. He's not the only person that called him teacher. In fact, in our text, the disciples, don't they call him often teacher? He also needed to know about himself. This man had a wrong view of Jesus, and he had a wrong view of himself as well. For in calling Jesus good, he didn't really realize what he was saying. And Jesus wasn't being falsely humble. Jesus, you know, that's what we do. We, we're falsely humble hey, that was you know, great, whatever thing you do. Oh, no, 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 don't, 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 don't flatter me. Don't, don't flatter me. No, he wasn't doing that at all, right? He, Jesus wasn't saying that Jesus isn't good. He's saying, you have no, no idea how good I actually am and why. When he says no one is good except God alone, who is Jesus really claiming to be to this man? He's saying, you, have, you think you know, you have no idea. I am the Lord and there's, there's one person standing here who is good, and it's not you. 
And I'm not just some good, some good teacher. He was affirming his own divinity, even if that man didn't quite catch it. And not only that, this man needed to understand that Jesus was not just some good teacher who was sent by God. He was that, but he's much more than that. That he is and was the Son of God himself. He's much more, quote, good than that man realized. The Lord Jesus Christ did not come to this earth just to give us a little boost with our self-help project. You know, I say this often, you know, Jesus is not spiritual Home Depot. You can do it and I can help. That's not, that's not what Jesus came to do. He didn't come because we need just to be cleaned up a little bit to get to heaven. The very next passage in our text, after our passage in verses 32 to 34, is the third time in three chapters that Jesus talks about the fact that he was going to die. That he had to die for sinners, even like this man, to be, to be saved. He came to seek and save the lost, not just to clean us up a little bit. And so you and I must kneel before him and seek salvation from him, not as just some good teacher, but as the King of kings and Lord of lords. If we don't see him and trust in him as God himself, as the Lord, then we don't really trust in him and know him at all. And the man also needed to have a right view of himself, didn't he? He needed to have a right view of himself. For the rich young ruler, I think, clearly thought himself that he himself was already pretty good. It's, I, it almost comes across it to the way I read it to be kind of a, you know, just between us from one good guy to another. Good teacher. I'm a good guy, but, you know, I, I must need something else. I don't have any peace of conscience. I don't have assurance of, of my eternal destiny. He probably thought he was pretty good already. So what is Jesus doing here? He starts off by trying to take him down a few pegs to reveal to him what his true situation was and what he was really like. It's the same thing, as kind of like what Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. Paul writes there, quoting the Psalms, Paul writes, none, none is righteous. And then what does he add? No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No one. That's the Bible's, uh, that's the Bible's judgment on, on humanity. That's the Bible's verdict on every single one of us outside of Christ. No one is righteous. And then the scripture wisely adds, no, not one. More than once. And why do you think that is? Because on our own, we naturally would say, well, they don't mean no one. Certainly they don't mean me. So the Bible says, yes, you. No, not one. Paul himself in Romans 7.18, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Paul himself says, on my own, there's nothing that is good that dwells in me. There's nothing good about me. There's nothing in and of myself to commend me, much less justify me before a holy God. And so the gospel and the grace of God will be meaningless to you if you think that you are righteous already. If you think you're pretty good already on your own, you'll never understand the gospel. You'll never understand your need for God's grace, much less what it means to be a partaker and so the next thing, what does Jesus do? First he says, is no, nobody's good except God alone. And then he says in verse 19, you know the commandments. 
Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. What's he doing? He's quoting what we call the second half of the law, the second table of the Ten Commandments. The ones dealing with your love for neighbor. The first four of the ten deal with your, your vertical relationship with God. No other gods before me. Uh, no, no images. No idolatry. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. And, and remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Those all deal directly with your relationship to God. The last six deal with your relationship to your neighbor. And Jesus basically quotes all of the last six. He even sort of includes one that's not one of the last of the ten, doesn't he? Now, many commentators, when he talks about defrauding, maybe when you're reading the list, you thought to yourself, one, he tells them out of order, Honor your father and mother is number five. It's the first of the last part of the, of, the, of the Ten Commandments. But he also includes, instead of coveting, he says, don't defraud. That you aren't to defraud. Now, many commentators believe that defrauding here in this text is kind of standing in the place of the Tenth Commandment, the commandment against coveting. And the reason for that is uh, coveting, the, the, the fruit or result of coveting is often what? Defrauding. Taking something unlawfully that doesn't belong to you, it's a form of of theft and stealing. Now, the text doesn't say so. There's nothing in the text that would spell this out, but it very well may be the case that this rich young ruler may have amassed his fortune in some sense by fraud. In some sense, he may have gathered this fortune by defrauding others. So Jesus brings that up as the fruit of, of covetousness. And this text reminds me of, of the text, the, the, the account of Zacchaeus. Remember when you're, when you're a little kid, remember the song? I won't sing it. You know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, and climbed up in the sycamore tree because the Lord he wanted to see. And he was a little short guy, but he was a rich guy, and he was a tax collector. And he got rich by what? By, by fraud. And unlike the rich young ruler, when Jesus came to his house, what did he do? He said... You know, Jesus, half of what I own, I'm going to give it away to the poor. And if I've defrauded, same word, defrauded anyone, I'm going to give them more, uh, twice or four times what I, what I took from them. I'm going to give away to the poor. I'm not going to make my wealth my idol. And I'm going to make up for whatever I've done to hurt other people. I'm going to uh, repent and also give, give back and try to make right the things that I've, that I've done. And what did Jesus say? This day, salvation has come to this house. That man, when he heard Jesus, I mean, Jesus, I don't remember anywhere in the text where Jesus says, hey, Zacchaeus, sell what you have, give to the poor. But he he couldn't wait to do it. He was so happy to have Jesus in his home, eating with him. Nothing else mattered. The things that were the main thing in his life before, he didn't care about anymore because he had something much better Now think about those commandments Jesus brought up to this rich young ruler. How few ever bring up the commandments of God in our evangelism in our day. But think about it. How necessary is that in our day? People hear what they think is the gospel and they don't even know what they're being saved from. They don't know why they need Jesus in the first place. And the law is one of the first things, the foundational things in any real evangelism. Romans 3.20, Paul says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Why? Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. When you hear the Ten Commandments, we read them every first Sunday of the month normally. 
When Jesus tells him, you know, you, you know better, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. The first thing that should have come to that man's mind was, I've broken those. I may not have physically murdered anyone. I may not have physically, outwardly committed adultery. I may not have even stolen something. Uh, but he knows, he should have known, he has broken all those things, at least inwardly. He has hated, he has lusted, he has coveted all these, all these things. J.C. Ryle, he says this, Ignorance of the law and ignorance of the gospel will generally be found together. He whose eyes have really been opened to the spirituality of the commandments, in other words, the fact that they go beyond just the outward actions, will never rest till he has found Christ. Bad, inadequate thoughts of God's law result in inadequate thoughts of Christ and his gospel. If we just think of the commandments outwardly, that I haven't done X, Y, and Z outwardly, then we won't have much thought of our need for Christ. We won't see our guilt and our corruption for what they really are. Do you, this morning, do you know yourself to be a sinner? To not be good on your own in the sight of God? When you read the Ten Commandments of God, and I hope that you do, when you read them, is one of the effects of reading God's commandments that you see your sins displayed in front of you? Or do you see them and say, been there, done that? Kept all that since, since my youth. Do you understand yourself when you read the Ten Commandments to be unrighteous on your own before a holy God? Do you realize when you read them that you need perfect righteousness to stand before a holy God and enter into his kingdom? Now, what was the man's response? I've already hinted at it. What was the man's response in verse 20 when Jesus brought up the commandments to him? He says, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. I've kept them. I've been doing it for a long time. Maybe from his bar mitzvah. You know, bar mitzvah means son of the commandment. Maybe he thought, yeah, since, as long back as I, as I remember, as long as I've been supposed to be accountable for them, I've kept them. I've done what I'm supposed to do. Talk about self-deception. Now again, Jesus could have certainly told him all the different ways that he had broken God's commandments throughout his life, but he didn't do so. Again, he looked at him and he loved him. Then he told him one more thing. This is kind of three strikes and you're out. Jesus gives him three different things, tells him. In verse 21, he says to the man, you lack one thing. One thing. Sounds pretty good so far, right? Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Go sell all that you have. Give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. It's like, let's make a deal time. You can have what's behind door number one or you can have what you have in your pocket. He lacked one thing. Now think about it. That probably got that man's attention. What did he ask him in the first place? What good thing must I do? What, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus now tells him, okay, there's one thing. Just one thing that you have to do. This man should have been, where do I sign? You know, what, what do I have to do? But what was the only thing he lacked? The only thing he lacked was everything. The one thing was everything. He needed to give everything away and follow Jesus, and then he would have treasure in heaven. Now, Jesus isn't giving him nothing. Jesus is giving him, he should have taken this deal. He should have taken this deal. Jesus was offering him real treasure, 
lasting treasures where moth doesn't, doesn't take away and thieves can't break in and steal. But what was the man's response? Did he jump at the chance? The chance of a lifetime? The one thing he needed to do? The one thing he lacked? He was a rich man, but he lacked the one most important thing any man or woman can have. What does it say in verse 22? Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Think about that. Jesus had basically exposed his unrighteousness, and rather than coming to Christ and doing what he said, and having life and entering into eternal life, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You know what's the old saying? Money can't buy happiness? Well, this proves it. He didn't lose his stuff. But he went away having great possessions and yet, what? Sorrowful, for he had those great possessions. At the end of the day, his worldly wealth was of more importance to him, more value to him than his very soul. That's making an idol of his stuff. Jesus elsewhere says in Matthew 16, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and does what? Forfeits his soul. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This man made a bad deal for stuff that wasn't going to last, that he couldn't even keep, that one day he would die and it would be given to someone else. And so Jesus turns to the disciples, doesn't he, and tells them at least three times, three times, he must have wanted to make the point. He uses the word difficult. He tells his disciples how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of, of God, especially twice, he says, if, if that person is rich. He says in verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You, you kids, think about this. You ever seen a sewing needle? Your parents sew? This little pointy thing that you can poke yourself with if you're not careful. has a little bitty hole that's hard to even see. You ever try to thread a needle? It, some, it, it can be embarrassingly difficult, especially if you have big sausage fingers. You, know, you sit there and try to get the little thread through. Jesus says, guess what? Not only is it hard to put a thread through a needle, it's easier for a camel, a big old fat camel with a big old fat hump on the top, to get through the little bitty hole in a needle than it is for a rich person to get into the kingdom of God. Now, how did the disciples react to that? Did, you know, were, they, were they like Marxists and socialists? Did they say, well, no kidding. Rich people are all evil. Those who have money, they must have, you know, they must have uh, victimized someone else to have it. No, this isn't, this isn't a Marxist socialist text. Jesus is not saying, rich people, bad. Poor, you're in. This isn't salvation by being poor. That wasn't the point. But what does his disciples say? They, they, it's, Mark says they were amazed. When Jesus said how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, they were shocked. They were shocked. They couldn't believe what he was saying. And then he goes further and says about the camel and the eye of a needle... And it says they were exceedingly astonished. They went from being shocked, and Jesus kind of doubles down, like, I don't think you guys are hearing me right. And says it even more, in a, in a more picturesque fashion. And they were exceedingly amazed at that. They weren't the only one that thought the rich young ruler was pretty close. They thought the same thing as well. They thought that he wasn't the only one that was pretty good, and that he was a fine candidate to enter the kingdom of God and to have eternal life. They, they might have thought, hey, we, sh we should make it 13. Let's increase the club. Let's let this guy in. He's, he looks like one of us. You know, how many are in that man's shoes even today? 
in our day. Think about how many people that we know, maybe even here, are respectable people, religious people, outwardly righteous people, maybe even rich. Now, no, no one says that they're rich, right? There's always, you always define rich by somebody who has more than you. That's how it works, right? So, so we, get off, we get off the hook that way. We say, well, we're not rich because so-and-so, you know, Bill Gates. Now, Bill Gates is rich. Uh, but there's, think about it. There's always somebody looking at you that says, I'm not rich. That person's rich. It's a sliding, kind of a sliding scale. But how many people are, you know, respectable, religious, righteous, at least living comfortably, no doubt see themselves as not too far off from the kingdom of God, on the basis of all these things, all the while while being strangers to Christ and ultimately somebody who will go away sad because of their many possessions. Many more people fit that description than we care to admit or realize. What are, what are you trusting in this morning? That's the main thing. What are you trusting in this morning to attain citizenship in the kingdom of God? Your own goodness? Jesus plainly tells us there's no one good except one, God alone. A wealth of possessions or a good retirement account, those aren't bad things. Nothing wrong with having things as long as your things don't have you. Do you view your material blessings, as good as those things are, as somehow being a kind of a wink from God that all is well with your soul because you have Things. Jesus says it's difficult for those who live on easy street to enter the kingdom of God. He even says more than that, doesn't he? He says it's impossible. It's not just difficult, it's impossible. That makes it harder. It gets back to the previous passage, doesn't it? Salvation is not something you and I can do. It's not within our ability to save ourselves. We have to come to God as helpless as a baby as powerless as a baby, as creditless as a baby, with nothing in our hands to try to aim, claim God's, God's grace. Now, why is it so difficult or impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of, of God? It's because they become an idol. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other, and then he says, you cannot serve God and mammon or money. Now, you know, when you have money, what's the saying? You, you make your money work for you, right? You invest it, you multiply it. Jesus says that there can, become, there can come a point when you're serving the money, not the other way around. Now, how do you know if you're serving money? Does anybody really think they're serving money when they're doing it? No. But if you make all of your decisions in life based on money, guess who you're serving? You're serving your money. You're serving your money. If we refuse to, 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 to help those who have less, we refuse to support, for example, missions and things because we want what we want, who are you serving? We're serving money rather than God. That rich young ruler went away sad because he had many possessions. Why did he go away sad? He valued his possessions more than he valued God. He valued his possessions more than he valued and loved his neighbor. He valued his money and possessions more than he valued his own soul. His great possessions were his God when he could have had God as his greatest possession. He made a terrible deal. And it takes the eyes of faith to see it. What about the twelve? What about the disciples? Peter reminds Jesus, what does he say in verse 29 to 31? He tells him, hey, 
we, we've left everything and we've followed you. Peter's listening. Peter's saying, hey, we've done that. Well, I mean, when you read earlier in Mark's gospel, what do they do? Jesus says, follow me. What do they do? They drop the nets. They leave their father's business and they follow, literally follow Jesus. And what does Jesus say in return in verses 29 to 31? He says, uh, Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So there's a cost to discipleship. There's a cost to, to discipleship. Jesus does say in Mark 8:34, if anyone, not just the 12, if anyone would come after me, let him what? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And as he told that rich young ruler, whoever follows him, even if it costs them everything in this life, will have treasure in heaven. But there's more. Jesus doesn't just promise treasure in heaven, although he does certainly do that. The Lord Jesus Christ is no man's debtor. The Lord is no man's debtor. Anybody who takes up their cross and follows Christ will find his words to be true, that you really do receive a hundredfold in this life, now, not later, not in the, in the life to come only, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. That's not the prosperity gospel. That's a false gospel. This is spiritual riches that are to be found only by being adopted into the family of God in the church. If you're a believer in Christ, have you not found it to be true in your own life? Regardless of what you may or may not have in your bank account. When you follow Christ, have you not found that Christ has given you a hundredfold houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands that you never knew you had? That you never had before. You might have lost some things by coming to Christ, but you've gained, even in this life, you've gained far more than you could have ever given up. How good is it to be the child of God, to have countless brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in the faith and lands? How good is it to have Christ as that, to use the word of Proverbs 18, a friend who sticks closer than a brother in Christ, and yet also to have many spiritual family members to love and support and edify and help you on your pilgrimage to heaven. How many of you have been helped by those in your spiritual family that you didn't have by birth, but you count as family, even sometimes more as your real family than your, than your earthly family is? You have many fathers in the faith, many mothers in the faith, many brothers and sisters in the faith to help you on your way. Our God is good and Jesus Christ is no is a debtor to no one. He gives us things in this life and he also gives us treasures in heaven. Let's pray.